anybody who wants to pursue teaching as a profession anywhere in the world right now uh, needs to acknowledge that their classrooms are basically marked by diversity in one way or the other, and that that diversity is not necessarily just about ethnic or linguistic or racial diversity. There are so many different forms of diversity that exist. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Dr. Rahat Zaidi, who is a tenured associate professor and chair of language and literacy at the University of Calgary. During Dr. Zaidi's 15 years at the University of Calgary, she has developed research expertise in language learning and literacy acquisition topics related to different cultures and languages within the current sociopolitical climate. Dr. Zaidi's most recent award-winning research project, called Optimizing Parent-Teacher Collaboration in Refugee Children's Learning, was completed in April 2020 and examined the challenges and barriers for refugee families and their children's teachers in establishing the relationships critical for student learning and success. We're so glad to have her join us today to share her expertise in how culture, religion, and language are sources of wellness in the school environment. Our conversation today is taking place on the ancestral and traditional territories of the first peoples of the Treaty 7 region. I hope you can take a moment to reflect on this place where you're currently listening from and find a way to connect with the land, remembering the footsteps that have marked these territories for generations and centuries before settlers, before ours. We come into our conversations with gratitude to the ancestors, elders, knowledge keepers, the land and water protectors from the past, in the present, and those in the making. Now, today's episode is being recorded in what the Blackfoot call Mokinstis, and this word describes where the elbow meets the bow, speaking specifically to the two rivers that join in what we now call Calgary. As we come into our conversation today, I've been thinking a lot about the significance of this place where the two rivers meet, and more specifically about the significance of meeting places, places where things come together. Our classrooms are like this, a place where individuals, Languages, cultures, values, beliefs, and stories intersect and come together. But sometimes in the process of coming together, we forget to make space and acknowledge how these differences show up or take form apart from and outside of our collective classroom environment. Sometimes we forget to trace the rivers, so to speak, to their sources. And unfortunately, we've inherited colonial ways of thinking that structure our education system around sameness in so many ways. And this can lead to the erasure of aspects of identity that are crucial for children and youth, for our students, particularly concerning their well-being, their resilience, and their success in our classroom environments. So in our conversation today, we're going to address the significance of the classroom as a meeting place and how we as educators can create environments that honor, nurture, and celebrate the sources of identity that our students come to us with. Before we begin, just a reminder to our listeners that podcast learning is mobile, so we invite you to get active, get moving, and to do a little something for yourself to nurture your own well-being while you listen. So welcome to PodClass, Dr. Zadie, and thank you so much for being here. As our listeners are thinking about ways to tend to their wellness, I was wondering if you could start by sharing some of your favorite ways to nurture your wellness. 
Thank you so much, Jamie. It's really a pleasure to be here with you this evening. And um, yes, uh, this is indeed a time uh, of um, great turmoil across the world. And uh, in current circumstances, there are so many things that uh, are at the forefront, wellness being one of those um, significant topics of conversation. So one of my favorite activities right now and in the past has been walking. I've made a conscious effort in my daily routine to incorporate walking and I try and do a few thousand steps a day, walking, breathing, some meditation as I'm walking and uh, just being mindful of my surroundings and being grateful for what I have. And so that's something I've incorporated. I've made a conscious effort to incorporate that in my daily routine. Thank you for sharing that. I think you're the first person I think that I've chatted with that kind of mentioned that process of gratitude as a way of maintaining wellness. And I think that that is really important and so powerful right now, given what we're all kind of navigating through. So another thing that I've kind of made a conscious effort to incorporate in my daily routine and I mentioned this because I think it's something everybody can benefit from, is just being thankful to all my family members and my colleagues and my friends. Mm -hmm. And I've made a conscious effort to express my gratitude. Sometimes I do it silently. Mm -hmm. um, other times I make a conscious effort to articulate it and maybe send an email or say it out loud to my family members or whoever is with me in that specific moment or time. That, that's such a great way to give right now when when sometimes we're limited in how we give. So thank you so much uh, for that reminder. So for my brief introduction, Dr. Zadie, we know that you are a scholar, you're a teacher, and you're a thought leader in so many different areas. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and about your work. So I come from a family that's experienced three generations of migration across the subcontinent, North America and Europe. Uh, relocation and displacement in some cases that's been marked by necessity and in other cases by choice. So some of my earliest memories emerge from my upbringing in a trilingual environment in Shiraz, Iran. My family is originally from Pakistan and my individual kind of multilingualism has grown as a direct consequence of having parents who spoke to me mixing various languages. So as an example, my grandmother only spoke to me in my mother tongue, which is Urdu. I attended a strictly Farsi school and also spoke to my neighbors in this language. So in effect, I began to unconsciously practice translanguaging at a very young age using my personal repertoire of language skills to develop what I refer to as hybrid forms of communication and um, just, you know, uh, being able to communicate between community and family members. So that's a big part of my background. That is the um, uh, diverse languages and cultures that have formed the backdrop of who I am as a scholar. I've spent 
you know, a long time in different parts of the world. And um, in Canada, it's been more than two decades now that I've been working as a scholar in the field of language, culture, and diversity studies. I think one of the things that your listeners might you know, find interesting as it concerns some of the current issues that people are confronting in the public education system is this whole exposure to a variety of cultures, languages, ways of being that I've actually lived in simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So as an example, I've grown up thinking in a variety of languages at the same time. And so these languages mean different things for me in different contexts. As an adult, I chose to learn French as a second language in Pakistan, which was a very unusual thing to do, let's say about 30 years ago from now. That provided me me with an opportunity to pursue, it led me rather to postgraduate studies in Paris at the Sorbonne, where I spent a long time studying French linguistics, second language acquisition, uh, intercultural communication. So I did my PhD from the Sorbonne and then found myself in the Canadian landscape where I was basically researching some of the same issues that I had uh, pursued as a postgraduate student. So multiculturalism is of um, great interest to me. So our podcast is Conversations Around School Health. And unfortunately, you know, we're in this Canadian context. Our conversations are very much steeped in those Western constructs of well-being. And these Western constructs often oversimplify wellness or or hyper-focus on physical health specifically, you know, physical activity and nutrition. So this tends to shape our approaches to wellness in the K-12 school environment. Uh, These Western approaches are also often hyper-individualistic. And in this way, you know, we we suggest that health and well-being is a matter of personal responsibility, or it's a result of an accumulation of personal choices. And I'm wondering if, if this is maybe a good starting place for us to kind of push back on these these constructs and talk about what is missing when we take up these hyper-individualistic approaches to wellness. Okay, that's an interesting question because um, it's at the crux of what I do as a scholar. So um, for the longest period of time, I've been interested in uh, understanding how people navigate these multiple identities that they acquire through their life experiences of where they live and what they become through um, the sociocultural context that they live through as part of their life. So identity obviously is not something neutral. Uh, We know to the vast abundance of literature that your identity is built through the context that you live through. And one of my favorite examples of a scholar to understand some of this is Pierre Bourdieu's um, uh, concept of habitus, which is habitus in English. And Mm -hmm. basically, he talks about this lens through which one sees the world. 
So he uh, describes things like cultural capital, economic capital, other forms of capital. So for example, if you're, you're born into a family where there is this exposure to, for example, visiting museums, you will grow up with a sense of an innate appreciation for works of art or other forms of knowledge that you may have been exposed to as a child. So similarly, these forms of knowledge are true for every society and every culture in the world. And so one of the challenges that we have in in the Western context for education right now is that we as practitioners are grappling with this idea of, okay, so what do we do with all these other forms of knowledge and all these other forms of being that uh, people bring into the public sphere, into your daily lives, into schools, into other institutions as well. So these are not easy things to answer. Of and course, neither, yeah. neither are they, um, you know, the, there isn't necessarily a black and white, you know, kind of uh, mm-hmm. stance that one can take. But there is this notion that we need to understand in, in the current multicultural context that we live in, there has to be a recognition of the fact that there is what we call a mainstream society and that that mainstream society is dictated by certain you know norms that are coming from somewhere mm-hmm. and that given that there is a dominant framework um, all of us who are living in that mainstream context are constantly you know living through different ways of being so for some people it may be marked by things like language by religious practices Uh, by different, you know, cultural practices that exist, the fact that your geopolitical, you know, um, situations are very much a part of your daily lives. So you're, you're living in this context where you're going back and forth between different situations in your life. And this can be different depending on who you are, where you're coming from. So I think in the West, we we are grappling with the sense that notion of mainstream is constantly being disturbed in a way with these narratives that are very much a part of our daily lives and we can't really um, ignore them in the sense that in the past, I, I think the difference was that living under uh, that whole idea of colonialization, people were somehow uh, educated to be more accepting of what that dominant mainstream thinking was. However, with all this movement towards questioning and the talking back in the sense of that post-colonial mentality, it has become a key practice to disrupt and engage in this conversation of, okay, so what can I learn from different forms of well-being from other societies? So I think that the collective notion of a community has been disrupted in some very fundamental ways for people who are coming from different parts of the world. They are extremely lonely and there is this sense of you know, urgency to develop some form of community. That form of community is being formed through various centers of worship or community centers or other you know, centers where people are gathering. 
And I think that mm -hmm. that's a form of wellness. However, what's lacking in the Western context is this, this whole gap that's been created within this multicultural framework. That is, we are multicultural and yet we're not. So uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, on, on paper, every culture or every community coming into Canada has the right to preserve their practices, their religious beliefs. You know, the government even provides through various funds and grants the ability to develop other uh, centers where people can gather and uh, there's also a push to maintain, for example, heritage languages. But I think what's missing in all of this, this notion of collective well-being is that the collective is lost in this, mm. this whole uh, race to kind of acknowledge diversity. It's not necessarily about acknowledging. The problem is that we need to uh, question how we can live well together. And that means that there has to be that sense of cultural well-being where somehow we can acknowledge that there is a mishmash of culture that actually articulates this, this idea that I'm okay with coexisting, for example, with people from different parts of the world. I can keep who I am as a person in terms of my individual identity, but then also I'm cognizant of the fact that there is this collective well-being that has to be uh, worked on together. So I think what uh, the West can learn from the East or other parts of the world is that this collective notion of well-being historically has been a part of history in different parts of the world. It has existed. It's not that it's not existed. There are so many different parts of the world where different you know, faiths and cultures have coexisted across time and that there's much to be learned through these practices and through the practice of listening to each other as well, and also focusing on these individual stories in a way that there's a collective story that can be told. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. I think there were so many so many things that you said that were, that were really striking and powerful mm -hmm. uh, for me. And I think that one piece that I think really, for me, kind of shapes how I come to this conversation is what you said about, you know, we're a multicultural society, but we're not. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that in schools, like that we talk about multiculturalism, but we don't live it in the sense that we we still maintain and and kind of operate within these Western constructs. And we don't do more than, you know, very surface level engagement with multiculturalism, I think. And there are lots of, of, you know, influences around that. I think one of the, one of the big pieces is that the teaching profession is largely white, like the majority of teachers are white. And so um, this influences how multiculturalism is taken up in these conversations, because, you know, whiteness plays a huge role in that and normative whiteness and that sort of homogeneity within the teaching profession really challenges how these things are taken up in the classroom. And I'm, I'm wondering, maybe, maybe you have comments on that or agree or disagree or, or whatever the case is, but I, I feel like that is such a huge issue is we are multicultural, but we're not. And we, this hasn't translated into pedagogical practice in schools and it hasn't even translated into, you know, school policies. Our schools are still running so similarly to how they were, you know, decades ago. 
Yes, I think we're moving in the right direction. There are a lot of good things happening. I have to say, um, Alberta is a fascinating landscape in, in the sense that we do have to, as a reminder to our listeners, I just want to highlight a couple of things that are fairly innovative in Alberta that do not exist on the same level in other parts of Canada. That is our language policy. We are one of the most progressive in terms of the bilingual schools that exist in our province. They're doing amazing work. So we have uh, bilingual schools like the Spanish bilingual, the German bilingual. We have the Mandarin bilingual program. We have an Arabic language and culture program. We have the Ukrainian. That's one of the oldest in the country. So uh, there are things that are happening in, in the background that are providing a number of opportunities for families coming into the province or even just, you know, anybody interested in, for example, being exposed to a different language and culture has the opportunity to look towards these forms of education that the public system is offering in Alberta. So that's a positive in that direction. However, that said, I think what's missing, and we're trying to introduce that through various initiatives in, for example, in the Workland School of Education and other places as well, is this idea that we need to think about things like language, culture, identity, uh, other forms of differences on a holistic level. So, for example, a very simple example would be who should be interested in the question of English as a second language or in the question of exploring some of the facets of things like language, culture and race and ethnicity. Well, my, my response to that is it's not necessarily people who are going to be experts, for example, in English as a second language, but it's really anybody who wants to pursue teaching as a profession anywhere in the world right now uh, mm -hmm. needs to acknowledge that their classrooms are basically marked by diversity in one way or the other and that mm -hmm. that diversity is not necessarily just about ethnic or linguistic or racial yeah. diversity there are so many different forms of diversity that exist in this world and that some effort needs to be made in terms of practicing some of those pedagogical strategies that can enhance the experience for our learners. So this does not mean necessarily um, having uh, multicultural weeks in your classroom because that at the end of the day does really nothing for people who yeah. come from different yeah. parts of the world. But really what I mean is systemic change taking these small steps towards enhancing your student experience in the classroom by providing a scaffolding instructional strategies that really look at some of these points that I just mentioned. And there are a number of ways of doing that as well. What you just shared about those multicultural weeks, I think that's speaking to things that have been entrenched kind of in our educational system. I think that's been one avenue that has, has sort of become a part of the norm in, in our education system where things are kind of reserved for one week. We take up the conversations in a kind of surface level way and 
and that's it. And you, as you just said, like, who is that beneficial for? Like, not necessarily for the students, right? And those diverse identities and experience. And I think one of the things you also just said is like, we have to recognize diversity is all around us, not as diversity as in the other, as in like, I'm not diverse, but other people are diverse. Rather, like there are so many different ways and intersections and identity that we bring to the classroom. And so speaking to diversity as not just an othering thing, but rather just like we're steeped in diversity. And so how can we see it differently? How can we recognize it differently and holistically? Which kind of leads me to my next question. I'm Dr. Alex Wilson, who's from the University of Saskatchewan, has talked about kind of our fixation on the four F's of culture. So food, fashion, festivals, and fun. And, you know, these being the aspects of culture that are often just the surface, kind of like that iceberg model. Like they're just those things on the surface, but actually there's so much more uh, that is not necessarily like a visible part of culture. As educators, and I'm, again, speaking kind of specifically as a white educator, we often reinforce these incomplete and very colonial understandings of culture. So what are some ways or some practices that we can take up in our classrooms that that actually get to those deeper aspects of culture and don't reinforce or appropriate those cultural perspectives, those linguistic perspectives that are maybe not our own? Great questions. One example that is my, one of my favorite examples is, and that's really easy to do for, for people. It doesn't necessarily require an expertise in the area of languages, is this idea of creating more language awareness on a holistic level across your school. So what I mean by that is that every year you have a number of percentage of students coming from different parts of the world. So a simple, non-controversial way of, you know, moving away from that multicultural framework is to generate a genuine interest in linguistic diversity. And what that means is that you focus on languages as a source of information for the audience. That is, there are so many things that languages symbolize. So, for example, where do the scripts come from, the uh, etymology for languages? Mm. Um, Does a script start from the right or the left or the top of the page or the bottom of the page? Who are the people who speak these languages? Uh, What's the brief history for some of these languages? Many languages are a mixture of other languages. So how have languages evolved across time and space? And so that is something that generates an interest in your students. It's informative for the teachers themselves who may not be aware of all these different languages that are spoken in the world. And every year in in a school, a simple way would be to look at the demographics, look at the census, look at what the data is telling you, and then pick those languages and add some more to the mix and basically create a very simple, you know, warm-up activity where through that warm-up activity, what you're doing is that you're acknowledging your environment, you're, you're being respectful to the linguistic diversity that does exist in the school, as well as it's a fantastic way of scaffolding other forms of languages that are very much a part of the linguistic ecology that is thriving in in a country like Canada. So in my own work, for example, I've been working on books that are called dual language books. These books are published in multiple languages. 
um, English and other languages. And I've made a conscious effort through the multilingual reading programs that I have piloted across Canada to basically bring in guest speakers who read to children in different languages. And every time the reading is done, it's alternated between the guest speaker and the teacher. And English mm. is the second language, as an example. So oh, what okay, that yeah. does is that it's it's creating an awareness, for example, of all the different things that I just mentioned. Another example that um, I can take a few minutes to just focus on is the diverse cultural groups that have historically now been a part of the Canadian landscape. So one example would be the Muslim community that has lived in Canada and that's now been contributing to the historic fabric of the country for the longest period of time. So rather than focus on other parts of the world, through the social studies curriculum, there are mm -hmm. different ways, for example, of talking about the Muslim identity within Canada. So mm -hmm. who are some of these Muslims who are uh, leaders in the community? Or even looking at things like the architecture of, for example, places of worship. So if you look at temples, if you look at mosques, if you look at the different architectural types, um, that exist, it's, it gives the perfect entry point to the social studies curriculum to stop and have this conversation with students and to sensitize them and create awareness around, for example, different types of designs that are consciously used within um, these places of worship. And so these are topics of conversation that then lead to other forms of knowledge that are linked to history, world history, world politics, current debates around different minority rights and other uh, entry points as well that a teacher may want to focus on. That's really powerful. Um, and I think, you know, speaks to how we can kind of push back on Western constructs that otherwise, like I know in Alberta with shifting Indigenous education, folks are continuing to say like Indigenous people are not in the past. We're not out there. Like we're here now. We're a part of your community and and we need to change those conversations. And I, I think I'm, I'm hearing you say the same thing about we need to stop thinking about or, or teaching about people and culture and societies as though they are quote unquote, over there or, you know, separate from our here and now and support our students in recognizing um, these parts of our community that are very much here and now and, you know, intersecting with our lives and improving our communities and contributing to our communities rather than, you know, building walls around folks in that kind of here versus their dichotomy that that's not necessarily true. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, our listeners already, you've provided a toolkit for this really important work. Um, 
I'm wondering if you would maybe speak to like the benefits for students uh, when they can see themselves and engage in their own cultural practices throughout and as a part of their learning in school. And, you know, listening to, to you talk about strategies for linguistic diversity, I can't help but think obviously everybody benefits from those environments. And, and as an educator, I think I would love to be in environments where um, you're steeped in inquiry just as a part of your environment and welcoming that linguistic diversity differently and more intentionally. But yeah, what, what are, you know, the benefits for, for students when they can see themselves in the school environment and in with, within the school learning? Yes. So there are incredible benefits to that. One of the things that has been the focus focal point for me for the past number of years is, this whole focus on identity. So Mm -hmm. identity construction is really a fascinating topic because all that I just mentioned earlier as well is really connected to developing an identity where you're not feeling like you're not heard. And so Mm -hmm. scholars have talked about things like identity texts, people like, you know, Jim Cummins has, has mentioned and pointed to the importance of mirroring back an image of students that's empowering and positive. And so that's something I truly believe in. And there are so many different ways of focusing on that type of work and basically uh, realizing that uh, our students that are in classrooms with us on a daily basis, just by, by being, you know, for example, Um, ethnically diverse does not mean that they're interested in exoticizing culture or the so-called homeland that their parents come from. What I've found through my own work is that they're interested in how their life is unfolding in Canada in this moment, along with all their friends, their environment, what they're interested in really understanding more of is how they can bridge this difference between uh, home and school because Mm -hmm. anybody who comes from a diverse background in the sense of ethnicity or any other marker that's connected to race, culture, language would agree that there is an obvious disconnect between Mm -hmm. what happens in the home and what happens in school. So I think that as practitioners, our work really is hone in on the nature of this disconnect. And first of all, be aware and acknowledge that this does exist. Secondly, Mm. acknowledge as well that there is a mainstream dominant culture and that there's nothing wrong with the fact that there is a mainstream dominant culture. But we need to acknowledge that it does exist. So sort of being in denial or saying that, well, you know, we are a multicultural country is not a socially active kind of stance. So I think yeah. we, we as, as teachers, we need to be sociopolitically active and acknowledge that we, we hold power in our hands. And mm-hmm. that if we acknowledge that we are multicultural, in terms of a framework, but there is more work that needs to be done in terms of systemic change. That brings us to the point of how. So the next step would be acknowledging that there is a disconnect. And point number three would be this whole idea of acknowledging that unconscious bias exists in today's Mm -hmm. world. And that 
by acknowledging that unconscious bias exists, we are not claiming that people are racist. All yeah. we are doing is that we are acknowledging that there is a bias. I often mm -hmm. provide uh, my students with examples of, you know, what if a so-called white person, as you referred to earlier, mm -hmm. ends up in a country somewhere in the Middle East? So in that case, that person is immersed in a culture that is not theirs. So there is mm -hmm. a dominant mainstream culture. Similarly, yeah. in this part of the world, you're reversing that context. And we're talking about, you know, a higher influx of people coming from different parts of the world to Canada and basically um, finding themselves in a situation where there are all these aspects of life that they need to make sense of. So basically just being more aware, acknowledging that this does exist, and then also acknowledging that people do hold an unconscious bias and that there is what Peggy McIntosh calls privilege, the mm -hmm. 50 points that have been made in her famous article that's called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, where she goes through 50 points that she claims in the U.S., uh, Black people are deprived of. And so yeah. that would mean just simply looking around you and acknowledging that the different forms of diversity that are visible in a classroom are not that visible in mainstream society. So when you open the television, what are the chances that the programs on TV will reflect the diversity in your classroom? Or what are the chances that going into a public library when you pick up a book that book is going to be a reflection of the societal diversity that exists. So once we're aware of that, then comes the proactive, you know, being proactive. So how do you how do you make a change? What are some of the things that you can do as a practitioner to make a conscious effort to change some of that thinking? And I think that that acknowledgement piece is is the first step and the most important. And I think that's an area where we continue to struggle as practitioners in the education system. And even conversations around privilege are couched politically in Alberta, like they're steeped in particular political values. And that doesn't mean that we don't have those conversations just because they're they're difficult and we don't go through, you know, those reflections just because they're difficult. It's so important to begin those conversations because like you mentioned, you know, as practitioners, we hold so much power and whether intentionally or not, that power can translate to harm with our students. And so doing this work and taking it on as part of our professional learning and our, you know, individual social practices, I think is so, so important. And it kind of leads to my, my next question, uh, because your most recent research endeavor focuses on how, you know, teachers can best support refugee students through meaningful relationships with their parents. And then you also have uh, a book called Anti-Islamophobic Curriculums that presents a specific kind of curriculum and, and framework to help teachers and young learners gain more awareness of cultures different from their own. Um, I'm wondering if you can share with us some strategies that are important in creating those classroom environments that don't just, you know, quote unquote, accept cultural difference, but that actually nurture 
cultural identities and tap into what you've described as funds of knowledge that students and their families are bringing with them. And I know you've already provided us with quite a few strategies. I'm wondering if you had anything else that you would like to speak to in terms of creating those nurturing environments and not just those kind of one-time events that don't really nurture or that, that don't really get to that acknowledgement of multiculturalism the same way. Uh, great. For um, the anti-Islamophobic curriculums, I'd say that this is a book I published uh, recently uh, as um, mm-hmm. it was basically there is an open access curriculum that students can ac- uh, can go to and it's called uh, Living Together Muslims in a Changing World. So if um, you're interested in looking at the types of activities that you can implement in your classrooms. There are lots of ideas where you can make it intercultural in the sense that these activities are meant as a trigger to basically have conversations about diversity in our classrooms. And they look at various facets using the Muslims as a specific example. They basically look at different kinds of instructional strategies that can be scaffolded uh, within the classrooms that you're living in. So uh, they're aligned with the social studies curriculum. And basically, uh, they look at simple things like tradition, an example of a form of knowledge that can be aligned easily with the program of studies and social studies or uh, science would, for example, be focusing on what a lunar calendar looks like mm-hmm. and why a lunar calendar is used in different cultures and what is the historical significance and how does it work. So this is an example of an entry point where, you know, students can look at it, students can learn about it, and then they can look at different forms of calendars that have historically existed in the world. Other um Aspects from this curriculum are linked to cultural contributions. So looking at the arts, looking at the sciences, looking at civil society. For example, Muslims left throughout the early world quite a legacy in terms of botany and their ability to cultivate useful crops in even the driest Mm -hmm. conditions and Mm -hmm. plant classification, which has helped Western scientists to develop things like pharmaceutical herbs. So students are given the opportunity through this curriculum to do research on these various topics, which allows them to better understand the uses that many common plants have in their lives today. Another example is mathematics and basically the history of math problems and discussion on the evolution of math in present day society. So these are, you know, really uh, some examples of what you can do depending on the grade level and the entry point. Another example would be immigration. Immigration is a big topic and, Mm -hmm. and that would lead to the actual, you know, focus on identity and connections within the current Canadian society. So really focusing on who are some of those leaders in our society right now that we can point our students to and where do they come from and what are the different stories that they bring and what is their contribution to mainstream Canadian society and what do they bring to this overall uh, narrative about being Canadian. So I think these are all interesting ways of basically exploring these ideas. So with respect specifically to refugees, I'd like to tell you a story 
that will probably uh, make a point about how important language is. So uh, one of the teachers in my study where we worked with Syrian parents who were newly arrived in Calgary and we held focus groups with them in Arabic where they talked about their stories, they talked about their difficulties, and we also held focus groups with teachers who taught in the LEAD program in the Calgary Board of Education. So one of the teachers in the focus group said, and I quote here, so I just had one experience with my Afghan student. This was a number of years ago, and the man always came to the, the husband always came to the meetings. And in the second year, the mom showed up and she said, I was surprised to see her. And she said, I can speak English now. I'm confident and I'm here to take control of my children's education. And I just about, I was floored. I thought, oh my God, this is what it's about. So I think as they gain that confidence, they're going to come and they're going to pick up the phone and they're going to walk through those doors and they're going to take whatever they have back. Mm -hmm. That obviously is one of the major things. So our key findings were dealt with language barriers. It dealt with communication. It dealt with uh, the literacy level of the parents that was very low in their first language. And so there was a long journey in terms of gaining confidence in English, gaining confidence just being in, in Canadian society, access to school, feeling comfortable coming into the school and understanding the role that, for example, in this case, refugee parents play in the Canadian system. So um, it really bottles down to things like we need to be cognizant of the fact that perhaps our teachers need implicit bias training um, and they do need role play uh, where we can develop empathy building practices and providing parents time and recognizing that things like parental engagement are developed and they're not born. So it doesn't mm -hmm. happen overnight. You really have to work with them to develop those relationships. And you also need to find your students' role models that look like them so that they can draw strength from that as well and understand that this whole journey of empowerment and building trust is a journey. It's not a race. So there's nothing mm -hmm. that can be done overnight. So when, for example, parents come to you and you find that their request is unreasonable uh, due to whatever it is, it could be a lack of knowledge around insight around what the norms are within Canadian society. So we need to offer them alternatives rather than turning down requests. So just saying mm. no is not good enough. Yeah. Things like acronyms, for example are very difficult for people to translate or understand. And so avoid using acronyms that are difficult to understand. Maintain regular contact with parents to prevent controlling disciplinary measures. So even if they're absent, you need to somehow sort them out, bring them into the system so that they're aware at least of what's going on with their children in school. Mm -hmm. And maximizing opportunities to engage with them recognizing, for example, that in many cases, parents actually do not have police clearance. Uh, they're too new in the country. It takes a while. That's what I found out through my research. That is, it takes a while to get yeah. police clearance. And so they may not necessarily be there. Uh, there's too much going on in their lives, but we need to still find a way to connect with them. 
And so um, I think that teachers need to consider past experiences and social circumstances and the impact of all these social circumstances that on, on families. And so the trauma-sensitive training, the professional development, all of that comes in, um, making sure that you have access to interpreters when these parents come to meet with you. Um, just something as small and simple as a language awareness toolkit would actually be beneficial for teachers who may not be exposed to a, a different language. And so when people are not exposed to a different language or they haven't lived through linguistic diversity or cultural diversity, they may not be aware of the kinds of you know mental blocks and uh, issues that people have when they're put into circumstances where they have to speak in a language that they're not comfortable in. So whether it's student teachers or teachers generally, everyone can benefit, for example, with almost some form of empathy training that would involve something like linguistic awareness, diversity training, being more aware geopolitically of, you know, where wars are going on on the globe. So as an example, a few years ago, we had an influx of Yazidi refugees in Calgary. So being aware of what the difference is between a Yazidi and Syrian coming from a different part of Syria or mm-hmm. Iraq, mm-hmm. what are the dynamics between the Yazidis and, for example, other groups from the Middle mm-hmm. East? So just being aware and uh, knowing what languages they speak, what are the origins of those languages, and just being aware of a few of these things would um, help you to create a more scaffolded approach to how you would implement some of these practices within your classrooms. Wow, you you have just shared such a wealth of you know your your research experience, but then also just so many tools for our listeners, whether they're pre-service teachers or in-service teachers, to be able to put into their practice and you know, map out their own professional learning journey in this area. I really appreciate all of the examples that you've provided. I think, you know, one thing that stood out is when you were talking about making those curricular connections, oftentimes when we talk about multiculturalism, we kind of position it within social studies and not like as though it's not relevant anywhere else. But um, for you to talk about, you know, ways to make those connections across subject areas and and the importance for all teachers to take on this work, um, not just social studies teachers or not just those teachers who might have refugee or um, newcomer students in their classrooms. Like this is this is the job of all teachers. This is important for all educators and just if it's not written explicitly in the curriculum doesn't mean it's not important for us to make those connections and bring that into the learning that we support in our classrooms. I'm just looking at the time and and I'm wondering if there is anything that you had wanted to share that maybe we didn't get a chance to share. Probably, I mean, if people want to read up on some of the latest work, I have two 2020 publications on one is on the dual language books. So they can okay. actually go and read that. And so it might be useful. I'm also encouraging students to go on the open access resource to actually look at some of those activities and download them. And it's only when people go there, I've had comments like, oh, my God, I had no idea this existed. Yeah. That sort of thing. It's there for people to use. So if they're interested, 
in actually taking a look and using some of those activities, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much for this. I wish we had more time because I feel like we've just kind of scratched the surface of so much of of your work. And and I just appreciate you also, as part of this conversation, just providing so many practical strategies, activities that folks can kind of implement, whether it's in their their practicum experiences or in their classroom come mm-hmm. the Monday that they come back to school. So I think that's that's so powerful. And, you know, I hope this is the first conversation of many because I think I, I have so much admiration and appreciation for your knowledge and expertise. And this conversation was so lovely. And maybe as my kind of last question, I know you kind of already suggested um, a few of those resources that folks could go to. Are there any other resources or any other um, sources of information that you would suggest that our listeners um, start with as they're kind of reflecting on their practice and and starting to engage in this work a little bit differently? Yes, I would suggest a focus on identity. I would suggest thinking about how you can incorporate things like identity text in your daily practice as teachers. I would suggest thinking about how you can incorporate bilingual, multilingual reading strategies using resources like dual language books. I would suggest looking up um, Living Together Muslims in a Changing World. That's an open access resource that is out there for you to look at and use. And of course, anti-Islamophobic curriculums. That's a book meant for uh, teacher practitioners to read through and think about different ways of incorporating suggestions into your daily practice. I would recommend looking at the notion of translanguaging and looking at different ways of incorporating scaffolding instructional strategies that make a conscious effort to incorporate translanguaging as a practice and basically making a conscious effort to think about things like unconscious bias that I mentioned earlier and how uh, that can be brought into conversations within schools as well because I think that it's about systemic change, and that needs to happen at the grassroots level. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Hot Zadie. And uh, we'll be able to include um, links to those resources that you suggested uh, in support with the podcast for the class and for our listeners. So thank you so much. Again, just really appreciated this conversation. And so, so appreciate your time and willingness to share your expertise and experience. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Everactive Schools. Thank you to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or you can visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the pod class is dismissed.